So Hume was an independent man of letters, an independent scholar. And one of the things that he says that I like a lot is that he identified somewhere in his writing, he identified study and society as the two greatest pleasures of life, which means that just contemplating the world, just doing philosophy and history and science and all those things, and having good friends and good company all the time. Those right. The By society, he doesn't mean like the good society, civilization. He means hanging out with his friends, and, out, yeah. you so know, like playing pool. Society, hanging out with friends um, yeah. and talking about God, the universe and everything else. That sort of sums up his life and the sort of outlook on life. By all accounts, he was a really merry, jolly person who liked to drink, who liked to eat, um, who liked to play billiards and all sorts of games and hang out with um, like-minded people. Um, a lot of the people, a lot of those like-minded people were also people who were into study. Um, like Adam Smith was one of his good friends. Um, Adam Smith, the economist uh, for the Wealth of Nations. He had a large circle of correspondents and friends and patriots. And his correspondence with a lot of those people sort of indicates the combination of his kind of good-heartedness and merry nature and the shared interest in learning and study. So that's the good side of Hume. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, the bad side of Hume is that he, for various reasons, some probably having to do with um, the prejudices of his, of his age, some maybe other psychological reasons, he also held some pretty ugly views about um, race, for example. So there are passages where he expresses some pretty abhorrent views about um, Native Americans, about Africans, uh, non-Europeans generally. So it goes to show that, you know, you could be like really into study and society and combine that and, and write a lot about, uh, and very sincerely um, and very influentially about all manner of things and still be in the grips of some awful beliefs and some prejudices. Yeah, you can be... No way justifiable, even by the lights of your own standards and the sorts of philosophical reasonings that you have um, expounded at length. They violate your own principles. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, is you can be not only a good guy who likes to party and study, but also a philosophical skeptic, someone whose whole thing is not taking for granted what you're supposed to take for granted, who nonetheless uh, fails to be sufficiently skeptical of some of the, the really dominant currents of culture. Do you see that racism as infecting his philosophical work? You, you, you pointed out how the good part of his character seeps in there does, does the bad part seep in there um from what i know uh of his philosophical work i don't really see it as infecting it in fact i think that the, the really puzzling and surprising thing is that um it it's at odds with his philosophical work with his, with his epistemology um skepticism is a big part of it it's just reasoning by experience is a big part of it and these sorts of beliefs that he holds are by his own lights um not well-founded beliefs and therefore ones that he should throw out, but he doesn't. Hi, I'm Dr. Devin Sanchez-Curry, and you're listening to Dialogues, Meditations, and Analyses, a companion podcast for the Problems of Philosophy course I teach at West Virginia University. chatting with me about the good and bad sides of the personality of perhaps the most important Anglophone philosopher of all time, David Hume.
On today's episode, we'll discuss one of Hume's major works, The Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, which was published after his death in 1776. In the dialogues, Hume has three characters debate what science can tell us about the nature of God. One character, Demia, is a mystic who rejects the very idea that science could inform faith. Another, Cleanthes, is eager to apply the lessons of the scientific revolution to reason his way to an understanding of God. Finally, Philo is a philosophical skeptic. Although he is committed to science and the project of allowing reason to inform faith as much as Cleonthes, Philo is dubious that much about the divine could be inferred from empirical facts about worldly matters. To discuss the dialogues, I'm joined by Dr. Nabil Hamid, the specialist in early modern philosophy at Concordia University, from whom we've already heard, and also by Dr. Ben Baker, a philosopher who works in a neuroscience lab at the University of Pennsylvania. In the first part of our discussion, I'll serve as the mouthpiece for Demia, the mystic. Ben will serve as the mouthpiece for Cleonthes, the God-fearing empiricist. And Nabil will serve as the mouthpiece for Philo, the skeptic. Together, we'll break down the central arguments presented by each character in the dialogues, and then we'll discuss the conclusions they arrive at about the proper relationship between faith and reason. So without further ado, here's me, Dr. Ben Baker, and Dr. Nabil Hamid, discussing three archetypical post-scientific revolution takes on the nature of God. Much like Descartes, who we talked about over the last couple of weeks, Demio wants an argument that can establish God's existence with absolute certainty. Or if he can't have that, he doesn't want any argument at all. Right? So that means that Demia likes a priori, prior to experience arguments for God's existence, right? The sorts of arguments you can come up with sitting alone by yourself in a stove-heated room, just with your pure reason at your disposal. He wants that kind of argument because he doesn't want to have to rely on scientific evidence. And that's because scientific evidence and the a posteriori, posterior to experience arguments that results from scientific evidence never establish anything with absolute certainty, right? So the sorts of conclusions, the sorts of proofs you get in science, as scientists use the term proofs, are called proofs in the sense of like the phrase, the proof is in the pudding. They're more like tests of whether something is true, but they're not proofs in the sort of logical, mathematical sense where you can prove with absolute certainty that the conclusion follows from the premises or that you can derive something from the axioms, right? Instead, the proofs of science are like, here's a test we can do to figure out whether the conclusion is likely. And that's all well and good for science, but Demia doesn't think we should put something as important as whether or not God exists in the hands of those sort of merely likely proofs. If we're going to have an argument for God's existence, it should be an argument that establishes with absolute certainty that God does exist, and so it shouldn't have anything to do with scientific investigation into the natural world. That's what Demia thinks we should take recourse in if we're playing the game of reasoning about God's existence in the first place. But actually, Demia isn't sold that we should be playing that game in the first place. To even those sort of a priori proofs, Demia prefers like a kind of blind faith. We should just believe in God. 
and not wait around until we've come up with reasons to believe in God and decided that, rationally speaking, it's the right thing to do. Uh, we should just take a sort of leap of faith, as the philosopher Kierkegaard would later put it, um, and put our trust into the notion that God exists rather than try to use philosophy to reason our way towards God's existence. And indeed, Demia thinks that even insofar as those sort of rationalistic Cartesian arguments he prefers have any purchase, they can't really tell us much about God. Um, so maybe we can prove that God exists um, via the sort of argument that Descartes gives. Um, so Demia gives a simplified version of the cosmological argument. Everything that exists has a cause. The whole universe exists, so it must have a cause. Let's call the cause of the whole universe God. But that sort of argument doesn't tell you that much about God, right? It might tell you that God exists, but it doesn't tell you anything about the characteristics of that God who exists other than God is the creator of the universe, right? Demia doesn't think we should have the sort of faith that's predicated on figuring out what God's like. Instead, Demia is a kind of mystic. We should just put our faith in God, the creator of the universe, and we should accept that we don't really know what God's like, right? For example, we should accept that we don't know what God's intentions are, what his purposes are, um, why he created the universe. We should just accept that there is this all-powerful force, it has its reasons, and that force is worth worshiping, right? We should just accept, uh, in the words he uses in the dialogues, God's adorable mysteriousness. So... Demia's sort of Cartesian philosopher's philosopher rationalism combined with Mysterianism about God was orthodox for a long time, right? Hume would, would expect his reader to know what sort of dude Demia is. But with the scientific revolution came another sort of very different sort of argument for God's existence. And the proponent of that kind of argument in the dialogues is Cleanthes, who Ben's going to be representing for us today. Hi, yeah. So I'm going to talk about Cleanthes a little bit. Like Devin just said, Cleanthes is the champion of empiricism. So you're going to read Cleanthes' site. A lot of the famous scientists of Hume's day, like or prior to Hume's day anyway, Newton and Galileo and Euclid. And um, he's going to be using this scientific approach even in the domain of the divine. So even when it comes to reasoning about God, um, we want to take this a posteriori kind of approach um, that Newton and these other scientists did. The, we kind of get introduced to Cleanthes as in opposition to um, both the skeptical approach that he accuses Philo of and the mystical approach that we just heard Devin talking about with regard to Demea. And Cleanthes kind of equates these, which maybe I'll say more about, but mysticism and skepticism, where you're kind of not attributing any positive characteristics to God, you know, God's just the greatest, the most infinite. We're not going to say anything about God other than that. It, it's not something that we can comprehend as kind of mere humans. That that characterization of God is what Cleanthes comes out as starkly opposed to. And we want to support our, our faith in God, according to Cleanthes, with this um, a posteriori approach. Um, look around the world, he says. That's kind of how he introduces his um, how I conceive of the matter. Look around the world, contemplate the whole in every part of it. So look, we're starting with our eyes. Observe repeatedly, um, reflect on your experience and infer. In particular, infer that in similar cases, you should expect similar results. So you see 
you know, the ball fall off the table over and over and over again, you see something similar to a ball on something similar to a table and it's pushed off the edge, you expect the same sort of thing. That's an a posteriori kind of reasoning. And this is the kind of approach we want to take to God, look around the world. He says, the curious adapting of means to ends throughout all nature resembles exactly, resembles, resembles, um, though it much exceeds the production of human contrivance. So what we see when we look around the world, according to Glanthes, are little machines. Um, just like the machines that the artifices of human design, that's what we see um, in particular when we look in, say, the anatomy of the human um, or the anatomy of the eye. Those are a couple of examples that Cleanthes likes. Um, look how well put together it is. Look how purposive, purposive the whole thing is. That, according to Cleanthes, is evidence for God. Um, we observe the evidence of his grand design everywhere. The universe, therefore, can be thought of on analogy to like a grand clock or house or some other design of human intention, just way bigger and way better uh, because of the scope of God in comparison to the human. And so this adjustment of means to ends um, is kind of the core of what of Cleanthes' a posteriori argument, an inference he makes where we, we end up with a designer where design, uh, just to add one detail here, design in Cleanthes' sense is explicitly human, um, he, he says something like, I know of no other kind. And so this is, again, just resisting a notion of God that goes to the mystical. You know, you might deflate the notion of design to a point that it would look nothing like process that goes into making a house or a clock. That's the process that, the, that Cleanthes has in mind. That's the process that um, we want to expect. We want to think is the cause of the universe coming from God. Yeah, so Demia reacts to this argument just with total shock, saying like, what? You're coming up with an argument for God's existence that that leaves something to chance that's not absolutely certain? And then the other two characters in the dialogue just sort of ignore Demia there. And the third character, Philo, goes on to push um, a different kind of objection to Cleanthes' argument. And Nabil will be representing Philo for us today. So Philo is presented as the skeptic in the dialogues. One thing that's worth noting is that right at the beginning of part two of the dialogues, after Demia has uh, presented his sort of Mysterian conception of God as all powerful, all perfect, um, the being whose name is he that is and so on. Um, Philo makes one thing really clear that's important to bear in mind. And what he says is that um, the three of us, Demia, Philo, uh, Demia, Cleantes, and I can agree that the question um, that we're concerned with is not really about the existence of God, but only about the nature or the attributes, um, the character of God. Philo establishes that he, Cleantes, and Demia all agree that the universe exists, um, and that they all also agree to the principle that nothing exists without a cause, and so there must be some being that um, is the cause of the world. Whatever that being might be, we call God. The uh, substantive question here is really about what the attributes of this cause are, how this cause operates um, to create and regulate the world. Right, and Demia thinks nothing can be said on that score, right? Registering that there is a cause and that that cause is God um, is as far as we're going to be able to get, and we should just be happy with that. Whereas Cleanthes, of course, is taking this step of using one's eyes in the world that we're now encountering and making an inference on that basis about its creator. Right. Yeah. So then Philo begins by uh, basically addressing Cleanthes. So one way in which we can sort of think of this dialogue is that um, Cleanthes and Philo are 
performing um, an exercise in reasoning through an acceptable form, what they take to be an acceptable form of argument in um, theological matters um, for the instruction of Demia. Also, don't forget little Pamphlius, the, the yeah. little <laughs> student hanging out, who it's purportedly for the instruction of. Right, yeah. <laughs> so Demia is supposed to take away um, this sort of uh, sophisticated form of reasoning about God and report that to um, his, his ward, um, Pamphilus. Right. So the Philo begins by establishing with Cleanthes that they agree that we must only argue a posteriori. That is that all our legitimate reasonings must be such that we only have appealed to what we can draw from experience, from looking around at the world. And Philo thinks that uh, Cleanthes has claimed that by looking around at the world, by contemplating the works of nature, we find a strong resemblance to the works of human intelligence, only that it's much more superior and more perfect. So you find the world to be a grand machine, analogous to the watches and houses that human artisans build, uh, just much more complex and intricate. And so Cleanthes concludes that the world must have a designer with an intellect um, and manner of operating similar to that, similar to but far exceeding the human um, designer. Now, while Philo agrees and commends Cleanthes for sticking to this mode of reasoning, he doesn't agree with the conclusions, and that's for several reasons. First, um, Philo points out that the analogy on which Cleanthes has based his argument for an intelligent designer is too weak. In general, he thinks it's a sound principle of reasoning that when two effects are exactly similar, then we are entitled to infer a similar cause in each case. So you see a bunch of levers and gears and pieces of metal put together um, in a device that tells time, and you infer that there must have been a watchmaker. And the watchmaker must have had some purpose in mind, must have drawn out a plan, acquired the right materials, and then put the whole thing together to produce a watch. The same way you see a house and it's made out of brick and stone and it's sheltering people from the elements, and you infer that there must have been a house builder going through some sort of similar process of reasoning, acquiring materials, drawing up a blueprint, and so on. Analogies are good and useful, uh, Philo agrees, when the cases are sufficiently similar, i.e. the effects are sufficiently similar, and we have one cause, and we can infer that the cause of the other one must be similar enough. But the problem that Philo points out with Cleanthes' argument um, is that when the cases are not sufficiently similar, then you run a risk of error. Philo asks, would you think that given the evidence of experience, the case of the world's relation to its cause is sufficiently similar to the case of the watch's relation to the watchmaker or the house's relation to the house builder? And he thinks, absolutely not. The universe that we, that Cleanthes has asked us to contemplate is vast and infinitely more complex than anything we have seen a human being produce. Um, we also know just one such effect that we call a universe. And even of that, we only know a small part and start tiny corner of the universe and whatever is accessible from it. So are we entitled to make conjectures about the whole based on just one case and one case that we understand so little? Philo thinks that um, Cleanthes will grant that the structure of the universe, um, even just in so far, as far as we are able to grasp it, is, not, is sufficiently unlike any structure that we have seen human beings produce. And what's more, um, we have never seen a world being made unlike um, um, as we have seen houses being built or watches being made or repaired. So he asks, um, on what basis um, are we entitled to make any suppositions about the nature of the cause of the universe? 
essentially, um, Clancy's kind of doubles down here, saying that if you were to find a book written, you know, in legible language, wouldn't that be as clear a mark of uh, intelligence, you know, in the, in the creation of the world as you could ask for? And in fact, isn't the anatomy of an animal um, or of the eye, and you can maybe imagine a more updated version of Cleanthes talking about neurons in the brain, isn't that just as clear a sign of intentional design and purpose? So Philo has this further objection to the kind of point that Cleanthes made that Ben just noted. And this is sort of like just shifting the strategy, the, the, the attack against the design argument slightly. So in his initial um, speech, Philo sort of notes the weaknesses of the analogy. Now he sort of goes after the rhetorical target or the, the sort of argumentative target of the design argument and any theological argument in general. One thing that Philo emphasizes is that the kind of reasoning that Cleanthes is pushing might actually lead him astray from his goal of knowing God, um, specifically the kind of God that he wishes, whose nature he wishes to establish. What he means by that is this, that presumably Cleanthes, Demia, um, Philo, and everybody else in um, who's their audience, presume that the idea of God is that of a unique, all-powerful being who created the world by a single act of will. But no matter how strong the analogy from human artisanry might be, or no matter how compelling you might think that like the, even the most complex creations, say computers or AIs, um, might be, Philo points out that rarely do we ever have examples in human life of truly unique creators. So, Think about the creation of a house. It involves stonemasons, bricklayers, carpenters, architects, many others working together as a team. A watchmaker needs miners to um, extract the materials and instrument makers for tools and so on. So even if we think that the structure, the structural analogy between human artifacts and the universe is sufficiently similar, if we go with Cleanthes' analogical reasoning, then we should probably infer that the cause of the world is similar to a team of artisans rather than a single all-powerful deity. But presumably that's not the kind of god that Cleanthes or Demia are after. Yeah, Demia takes the argument having gotten here as just, you know, really good evidence that we shouldn't have gotten on this track in the first place. Because once you start taking empirical evidence into account, you end up in absurdities like, there's not one god, there's a whole team of gods, like there's a team of builders for a house. And that's insane, and it's blasphemy, and uh, if we had just stuck with establishing god as the cause of the universe, and then celebrating god and all of his mysteriousness, we never would have gotten here. Um, but Cleanthes thinks he can resist on... on uh, his own empirical grounds. Cleanthes, uh, hearing Philo make these points about alternative kinds of design of the universe, so perhaps a team of gods or a god who's, this is his first attempt um, and it's going to take a lot of practice before he makes a universe that's any good. Right. Or maybe, in fact, Philo points to sources of order besides design um, the generation, he uses the word generation without analyzing it, generation as a source of the order in an animal or a, or a vegetable or a plant, and supposes that we might um, analogize the universe rather than it being the artifice of a creator who stands separately from it. Um, rather, it itself is the body of God, is the animal body of God. And so Cleanthes, in response to 
this um, imagination says, in many circumstances, it might resemble an animal body, yet is the analogy also defective in many circumstances? No organ of sense, seat of thought or reason, no one precise origin of motion and action. In short, it seems to bear a stronger, stronger resemblance to a vegetable than to an animal. Um, and this would be so far inconclusive in favor of the soul. So Cleanthes kind of pushes this as a reductio, a reductio ad absurdum, meaning you're going to end up with an absurd conclusion and therefore your premises um, must have been, you must have started off on the wrong foot. Because if you're here reasoning about the different parts of the universe as parts of God's body, um, the analogy that's suggested is that of a plant. Um, and again, here we're, we're at an absurd conclusion. Yeah, so, so what do you guys make of this back and forth between Philo and Cleanthes? One thing I find interesting is that when the design argument is trotted out these days in the 21st century, people's initial reaction is often to bring up evolution by natural selection, right? To point out that at least a lot of the things in the universe that seem to be designed, that seem to work um, in these intricately functioning ways, the same way that human artifacts work in intricately functioning ways, do indeed seem like they're designed and must have had a designer, but we have an alternate explanation in the form of evolution by natural selection that explains how they have the sort of marks of designed things, right, um, by increasing fitness over many generations, um, even though there's no designer there, right? So the most common response you hear when the design argument is brought up these days is a response that takes for granted this really strong analogy between human artifacts and things in the living world, um, but then shows that nevertheless we have an alternate explanation of how they appear to be analogous, even though in fact one requires a designer and the other doesn't. What Phyla is doing in the dialogues is cutting off the analogy or attempting to cut off the analogy before we have to get to that point, right? So Hume is writing um, about a generation or two before Darwin appeared and wrote The Origin of Species and about 100 years before the theory of evolution by natural selection um, really became uh, prominently accepted uh, in the scientific community. Um, but he doesn't feel at least Philo doesn't feel trapped by this argument, even without recourse to an, a separate explanation, because he just doesn't feel that the analogy is as strong um, as it might seem when you're examining uh, the human eye and are just struck by how intricately designed it seems. And I'm wondering what you guys, trying to imagine yourself in a pre-Darwin world, um, does that analogy seem compelling? Uh, what do you think? So I think that Philo's um, position on the contemporary design argument and the debates around intelligent design and natural selection would not be really would not really be that different from the arguments that he is a sort of way of reasoning in the pre-Darwinian right setting. And I think that's the reason is that even if he were to be confronted with today's intelligent design debates. And somebody who's an opponent of intelligent design pointing to the forces of evolution, whatever those might be, as responsible for, as, as explaining the appearance of um, organized being, of organized forms. He could still lob the same sorts of skeptical objections to them. Because fitness is a, it's a normative notion. 
when we talk about fitness and as evolution, the force of evolution selecting organisms for fitness, um, why would why should we think that? Well, what's our evidentiary basis for thinking that fitness is something that is um, a fundamental um, thing that nature strives after, mm-hmm. or parts of nature strive after? Um, we have no um, purely evidential basis to think that that is always, or for the most part, um, experienced in in causation. But I think, like as general, the, the general thrust of his argument is that if we are restricting ourselves to empirical evidence, then we don't have a solid enough basis to conclude one way or the other about what the forces of organization in nature are. Yeah, good. So, so even though it might appear um, at first like you know the theory of evolution um, sort of turns this dialogue on its head and makes it all obsolete, actually. You might think that both Cleanthes and Philo would be able to stake out the exact same positions they stake out in this dialogue, even if they fully accepted and understood that theory. Um, Because as you say, Philo is still going to have this skepticism about the analogy from the get-go, but also Cleanthes is still going to be able to point to the question of how it is that the world is set up in such a way that things are designed through natural selection, right? And you might think that that is evidence that there was an intelligent designer who set that whole process of self-design in motion as much as, you know, if a human being made a robot that made other robots, um, those other robots are still evident that there was an intelligent human designer at the beginning of that process, because how else would you get these intermediate robots that design the the self-designed robots? Yeah, both of those points make a lot of sense to me, maybe just to put the point in another way. I think that where the battleground is, so to speak, or where the kind of line is that Cleanthes and Philo are arguing over might shift on one or two terms, but that essentially the debate would look the same, those terms being vegetation and generation, maybe. Um, If Cleanthes is now going to say something like vegetation as a source of order or generation as a source of order is really wrapped up in this larger thing that's biological evolution, that is an amazing source of order. And so it must have come, and Cleanthes is going to say, from intelligence and Philo is going to take the same kind of line that is just going to challenge what Cleanthes takes to be a fundamental tie between order at base and intelligence as a source of that order. Philo says, Is there a system, an order, an economy of things by which matter can preserve that perpetual agitation which seems essential to it and yet maintain a constancy in the forms which it produces? There certainly is such an economy, for this is actually the case with the present world. The continual motion of matter, therefore, in less than infinite transpositions must produce this economy or order. And by its very nature, that order, when once established, supports itself for many ages, if not to eternity. So this is kind of a proto-description of random change potentially leading to order that then keeps itself around, which Philo is still going to have as a backstop in response to Cleanthes' updated Evo uh, version of his argument. Yeah, cool. I think that's a really important point. The terminology of the debate and the illustrations they use to put their arguments forward to each other are all tied up with the current scientific consensus um, of the 18th century in the case of the dialogues or of the 21st century in the case of ongoing debates about the design argument. But the fact that the two arguments are cloaked in different scientific language doesn't mean that the sort of underlying philosophical argument is is changed in its fundamentals. Right. Yeah.
Pushing his skeptical line through 11 out of the 12 parts of the dialogue um, and making Demia leave in a sort of huff in the process. I think this is actually a kind of a nod to Plato's Socratic dialogues, which very often end up with Socrates making someone so mad they leave in a huff. And then after that person leaves in a huff, um, the dialogue that Socrates has with those who remain um, tends to take a different turn and uh, get a little bit deeper than the dialogue that was being had before the person left. So I think Hume is sort of tipping his hat to Plato here. He has Demio leaving a huff. You know, these guys just stick to their attempts to characterize God through their a posteriori arguments, and Demia's had enough of it. And then Philo does something strange. Uh, he sort of seems, in part 12, to take it all back and reverse his view. To say, yeah, I've been playing the skeptic, um, but in the end, I'm more on your side, Cleanthes, than I've been letting on. Uh, so, Nabil, what's going on there? Yeah, so this is like, um, this brings out one of the big questions surrounding Hume's dialogues. Because most readers of the dialogues historically have basically just thought that um, Hume is to be identified with Philo, or Philo is Hume's mouthpiece, because he sort of, rep- he sort of seems to represent the sort of epistemological skepticism that Hume deploys in the rest of his philosophy as well. So he seems to sort of fit the mold. But then Philo, as Devin was just pointing out, he opens up the last part of the dialogues with this kind of, you know, putting his arm around Cleanthes and says, that, well, you and I sort of get each other and, you know, um, there's no sort of nothing to hide between us. I think this is uh, going to be the start of a beautiful friendship. Yeah. So we live in unreserved intimacy. And then he says that, so you will know that no one has a deeper sense of religion impressed on his mind or pays more profound adoration to the divine being um, as himself, as Philo. And he says that if a purpose, an intention, a design strikes everywhere the most careless, the most stupid thinker, and no man can be so hardened in absurd systems, i.e. philosophical views, as to reject it. So here Philo seems to then suggest that, um, yeah, there are all these reasons to be skeptical about um, both a, a priori and a posteriori arguments for the nature of God, for the way in which God causes the world to exist. But it would be um, somehow foolish or somehow um, being, like, you have to be sort of willfully disingenuous in order to deny that there is evidence of design in nature. There's some evidence of intentionality and, and purposiveness as we look around us. Um, so this raises, the, raises a number of questions. One of them is, What's Hume up to in these dialogues? If we take that to be evidence that, well, Philo can't be exactly Hume's mouthpiece, I mean, we don't want to think that Demia is Hume's mouthpiece and Cleanthes, it's not the sort of argument that Hume elsewhere develops. So what's going on with the dialogues as a whole? What are we supposed to take away from it? Mm-hmm. That's one question that, that it raises. And another question that it raises is that um, what is the goal? What is the sort of intellectual purpose and end of arguing about the existence and the nature of God. Um, what kind of answer are we looking for? And what kind? What are the? What sorts of answers would be would be satisfied with? And what sorts of reasonings would uh, be sufficient to meet those intellectual needs? Yeah, maybe one one thing that that last point Nabil made me think of is how much of the dialogue is spent, like you said, on this a posteriori back and forth with both of these characters and all of the characters at the beginning, and then both of these characters at the end, mentioning almost in passing 
very different kinds of pragmatic arguments for religion and for certain kinds of belief that weren't most of the source of the discussion, but that support the conclusion, at least in Cleanthes' mouth, support the conclusion of not just design per se, but this grand world that is a machine saying kind of that's that's the way we can make sense of the world and your skeptical doubting or these alternative kind of skeptical arguments can push one into this kind of temporary and unsatisfying place of suspense about what one thinks about the world. Um, but there isn't any alternative way to kind of positively account for the intelligibility of the world, Cleanthes thinks, um, except for as the great machine creation. And it's impossible to proceed without some theory. So proceed with this one. The proper office of religion is to regulate the hearts of men and religion kind of properly being a, about the heart rather than the, the mind and the theory. What you need for the heart, according to Cleanthes, is this doctrine of a future state, is this vision of, you know, pure, perfect bliss and achieving everything that God has in store for you once, you know, you live out your life here. Yeah, I mean, it in some ways brings Cleanthes closer to Demia, um, or at least closer to <laughs> what a less hardline mystic than Demia might say, um, which mm -hmm. is that. Look, what gets Cleanthes into trouble isn't looking at uh, the world and all of its elaborate design and imagining that um, God might have been the designer who um, put it together in this really magical way. Um, for a mystic, that's all well and good, so long as you already believe in God and you're just sort of like having one of the avenues in which you give glory to God, be paying attention to the natural world and its wonderful design, right? Where Cleanthes goes wrong um, for a sort of demia is um, in taking there to be an argument that can establish God's existence and his characteristics there. Because once you make it an argument, then you open yourself up to Philo's objections um, because there's just as good an argument to be made for a whole team of gods or for um, the great spider that weaves the universe or for the great plant of which the universe is part as for the sort of single Christian God that these guys are trying to vindicate, right? Um, and so there's these two like very different relationships that you might think science has um, to belief in God. One is we need to do science in order to figure out what to believe about God, right? And that's where Cleanthes starts. And the other is doing science is giving us a window into a part of God's creation, but we already believe in God. And so we're going to take whatever science shows us as the products of God's will, um, no matter what science ends up showing us. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that Cleanthes draws closer to Demia at the end here. So you might think that there are two reversals. There's like a, um, there's Milo's mm -hmm. reversal, um, where he sort of comes out as this kind of minimalist um, theist. He says that right. I have true religion, I don't have superstition. So what I'm opposed to is superstition, i.e. all these sorts of um, speculative constructions on the bare belief that there is some sort of creator or some sort of cause of the world. But Cleanthes' reversal seems to be that when he says that um, the proper office of religion is to regulate the hearts of men, humanize conduct, infuse the spirit of temperance, etc., mm -hmm. is that he thinks that seems to suggest on one reading of it that um, all of that argument about evidence and whether the evidence of looking around in nature supports some specific view about the nature of the deity 
is kind of irrelevant to right. the business of religion and the, and the value of faith. So in the early modern period, and especially with the Protestant Reformation, there is this, um, and especially with the kinds of, with the controversies around Copernicanism, um, when a lot of people were trying to resist the Copernican sun-centered view of the universe by pointing to various passages in the Bible, which suggest that the earth was at the center and so on. A lot of people, in order to counter that, started arguing that the Bible should not be read as a work of science or astronomy. Rather, the Bible is a work uh, about um, how you should live. So it should be seen as a moral, as a book of precepts, as a book of, um, that's giving you a code of conduct. So this is being written in a Protestant context where the idea that you accept the, the gospel on faith is deeply ingrained, that um, you don't look for evidence for the goodness of the Bible. You take the, the word as it's revealed on faith, and then you try to interpret that. And the view that Cleanthes seems to be pressing here is that we accept that on faith, but what we find of significance in it is that it's giving us um, a guide about how to live our lives, not about... Uh, where the sun stands in relation to the earth or how large the universe is and so on and so forth. From that perspective, Demia and Cleanthes seem to disagree about how to reason our way into God's existence and attributes if we're going to do that. But they agree that like, first and foremost, when it comes to your relationship with God should just be faith and sort of participating in the life of the church. And the reason stuff is just sort of a fun philosophical game you can play on the weekends. You know, Demia thinks Cleanthes's way of doing it is blasphemy. But other than that, they don't really disagree about the sort of core tenets of their belief in God. Yeah, I was going to say that characterization of the second reversal helped make what Cleanthes says at the end make more sense for me. Because um, the way he conditionalizes what he says about the world as God's grand machine... You know, his his reaching that conclusion by way of you can't do you can't successfully do the skeptical argument um, and end up at some positive view and you need to have some positive view. Right. And so we can make sense of the world. So that line of argument is very different from the look around the world line of argument. Yeah, the sort of um, if you, so if you see Cleanthes is sort of trying to separate out the domains of faith and reason and saying that, well, faith are all mm-hmm. about just kind of human conduct and practical reasoning. The challenge to that is that. Um, is it really consistent or coherent to think that we inhabit these two very different worlds? Like um, when we are concerned with our sort of everyday lives and our moral decision-making, we think that, well, now we're accessing a different part of our mind. <laughs> right. But when we're doing science and we're doing something totally different that has no relation to it. A sort of classical objection to this kind of separation of faith and reason, um, including in matters of religion, would be that um, faith and reason ultimately cannot deliver two different sorts of truths or the principles that um, practical reasoning and the principles that theoretical reasoning are based on cannot at least be in conflict with one another. So there right. has some sort of underlying unity um, if we are not to be saddled with this um, conception of ourselves as fragmented. And if you have, if you're committed to some sort of like unity of human reasoning, then you think that, well, the kinds of, reasoning that you employ about moral conduct, the sorts of interpretations that you draw out of scripture after having taken it on faith must be somehow um, compatible or consistent with the kinds of reasoning that you um, employ uh, when you just take yourself to be looking around the world and contemplating nature. Yeah, but then the question is, which is going to give? 
right? So to me and Cleanthes clearly both buy that principle that the two have to be compatible, um, but they're also both committed to making their reason conform to their faith rather than the other way around, right? They have their religious convictions, um, and Demia is just going to storm out of the room uh, whenever somebody starts really pushing on them. And Cleanthes is more patient and is willing to argue, but um, he's not going to seriously consider the idea that the whole universe is a plant or that um, there's a team of gods, because in the end, even if those are equally well supported by the evidence as his preferred claim that there's one god, the latter is always going to win out for him because it's what he already antecedently believed on faith. Whereas Philo, even if he's as much of a true believer as he insists in part 12, he seems to think that reason should lead and that faith should conform to reason. So it's not in that light so much of a reversal for Philo in part 12 as... Uh, admitting that in the end he thinks reason does lead to something like the place Cleanthes wants to get from the start. But the difference is that Philo insists that we have to use reason and start with reason to get our way there, and only then should we really have faith. Whereas Cleanthes thinks, no, 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 we start with faith and then we use reason to vindicate that. Or not even to vindicate that, but um, as a separate avenue of exploring that or something. That, that suggests to me one interpretation of what Cleanthes should take them to be doing in this discussion. Um, if he really is committed to religion is about hearts and, um, you know, we're not really considering some of these hypotheses that Philo's a posteriori reasoning is leading us into, um, then it seems like we shouldn't really take Cleanthes to have any imagination that he's going to discover something important about God's basic characteristics in the course of a conversation like right. this. Um, and so instead, this is kind of an exercise um, or, you know, maybe even a, it's, it's itself a kind of religious practice for him. I'm not sure how to characterize it, but uh, yeah, that, that casts the earlier chapters in a different light. For yeah, me. it makes Demia um, seem a little more principled than he might seem at first, um, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, in the end, the lesson seems to be that if you're going to lead with faith and only then um, try to make reason conform to faith, then it doesn't matter how much you like show the signs of being a child of the scientific revolution who really cares about the empirical data. If you're not willing to let that data upset what you already believe about God, then you might as well just be Demia from the start and take what you think you know about God on faith and uh, not worry too much about the evidence. Yeah. I think like, and Ben, what you just said towards the end there was, um, that raises that, that like brings us back to that second question as well of like what's going on in the dialogue as a whole like what's yeah. mm -hmm. up to if all of these characters end up kind of you know stepping on their own toes or sort of walking back and, mm -hmm. um, yeah so philo ends the dialogues with this remark he says to be a philosophical skeptic is in a man of letters the first and most essential step towards being a sound believing christian so this seems like the most straightforward declaration of Philo's letting reason lead the way and uh, figuring out what to put faith in on the basis of your reason and doing science and so on and so forth. 
Um, but it's also Philo's most straightforward just declaration of religious belief, right? He is a philosophical skeptic. He's shown that skepticism all throughout the dialogues. And he claims that this has led him to being a sound believing Christian, right? So read literally, this looks like a profession of faith. Um, as Nabil mentioned earlier, um, most Hume scholars read Philo as sort of being Hume's mouthpiece in the dialogues. And so dialogues end with Philo saying his skepticism has led him to be a man of faith. It sounds like, read literally, Hume is professing his faith here, right? He's a philosopher first. He's committed to skepticism. Um, but nevertheless, that leads him to a place where he has roughly the same religious beliefs as the characters Cleanthes and Demia. But some other historians of philosophy think that Hume's being a bit coy here, right? So they think that actually Hume's an atheist, um, and he thinks he can make other people become atheists too by encouraging them to become skeptics, right? If he says, become a skeptic, and that's the best way to believe in God, then that'll convince lots of people who just want to believe in God the best way they can to practice skepticism, and then he's got them roped in, right? Because once they're practicing skepticism, they'll see that there are all of these holes you can poke in the design argument and the cosmological argument and all the rest, and in fact, that'll lead lots of people to be atheists, not to believe in God at all. Moreover, it'll do that in a way that doesn't get Hume in trouble with um, the leaders of the church, which are an extremely strong social influence while he's living. So if Hume were an atheist, right, this would sort of be a doubly sly, powerful way of achieving his goals in that he could get lots of people converted from Christianity to atheism without ever admitting that he himself is an atheist. So what do you guys think about this? Was Hume a believer as well as a skeptic and he just thinks reason should lead but faith will follow? Or was he a sort of closet atheist? Um, I'm, I'm definitely not sure. But I wanted to call attention to part one where, uh, don't you remember, said Philo, this excellent saying of Lord Bacon. And Cleanthes says that um, a little philosophy makes a man an atheist and a great deal converts him to religion. And Philo kind of says, no, I wasn't quite saying that, but yeah, I agree with that too. <laughs> well, anyway, this characterization of a development from start off with faith, then you do a little atheistic, skeptical doubting, and then you end up back with a conviction that's, you know, this would support the reading of Philo as really having the strongest kind of truest sort of faith in religion and Demia being the one who's at this kind of earlier stage who, who hasn't yet even got into the skeptical doubting that he will need to do in order to reach Philo's more elevated. So, you know, that would, if, if Hume wanted us to come away with that picture, then that would not be a very atheistic thing to do. But I certainly don't know that he was trying to do yeah, that. Yeah, so he's definitely planted the seeds to allow for a really strong reading that supports the view that he just thinks that doing this sort of philosophy is the road to a stronger, better faith in God. But planting those seeds is also exactly what he would do if he were an atheist who was trying not to get in trouble and trick people into becoming atheists too, right? What he would do then too is in the early parts of the dialogue, parts one and two, tell them like, 
look, all of this philosophical questioning, it may seem a little suspect at first. It might seem like it leads to atheism at first, but stick with it and you'll get what you really want, true belief in God. Uh, if you want to sucker people into atheism who don't want to become <laughs> atheists at first, that's exactly what you tell them. Is like, don't worry, atheism won't hurt you. There's something better on the other side. And then once you've got them into atheism, you pull out the rug from under them and voila. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, so I go back and forth on this. So there's like, there are a lot of scholars who think that um, Hume is an atheist. And the last, and like one explanation of part 12 is that uh, it's sort of like stuck in there at the end. So that he doesn't get into trouble with the censors. But it's like a really well-crafted um, conclusion to the dialogue. And like as Devin earlier pointed out, that it sort of it could be seen as sort of a, a nod to Plato and sort of following that kind of structure of a Socratic dialogue. He put quite a bit of thought into it. And the fact that Philo, so if we just sort of you know go with the text as it's written, it seems that well, Philo gets the last word, and the last word is that you know he became a true Christian. He, does, he discovered true religion at the end. Now, even if so, so even if you think that it's some kind of like um, heterodox sort of um, theism that Hume is trying to conclude with, a, a really good objection to that is that, well, what is the content of this Humean true religion? Yeah. How deep or how uh, valuable it really is. Um, you might think that like Cleanthes is a sort of practical conception of religion that he lays out is even if you think that, well, it's kind of wishy-washy or it's kind of not theoretically well-founded, at least Cleanthes is pushing a kind of substantive um, conception of religion that has concrete effects on human life right. um, and human society. But as far as we can tell from what Philo says, um, true religion is that, um, he quotes Seneca, to know God is to worship him. Um, we can't really, we ought not to speculate about God's nature. We ought not to speculate about what God wants or what God dislikes, what God tells us, us to do or not to do, um, how we should set up a society. And he says that the, the whole of natural theology, if it only comes down to this little bit of reasoning, that there is some remote analogy um, between the causes of human production and the causes of, uh, cause of the universe, is that really like a rich enough conception of religion and theism has to be worth something? Yeah, I mean, again, Demia's mysticism comes off in the end as um, maybe not as, as silly a view as it seemed at the beginning, right? Um, it seems like maybe the really sophisticated philosophical faith that Hume ends up with insofar as um, he is actually a believer um, that Philo ends up with anyway, if we read the text literally, supports the same sort of viewpoint that Demia started the dialogues with, which is that, uh, look, uh, if you look at the whole of everything that there is, yeah, you should believe in God, but there's just not that much you can say about that God that you believe in. Yeah, I think like, um, I'm inclined to think that Philo's true religion, as far as we can sort of construct out of the text, is even thinner than Demia's, because Demia at least is um, pretty adamant about, say, uh, equating the um, essence and existence of God, either that God is the being who's named he that is. That's like the classical expression of necessary existence being part of God's essence. Um, he's also committed to these classical sort of philosophical theological points about um, God's perfection and God's power being identical to one another. So there is like this Mysterian strand in Demia as well, but he also just accepts a lot of the 
traditional tenets of philosophical theology in the Abrahamic tradition. Whereas philosophy is saying that there's none of that. All we can say is that there's some sort of remote analogy because we're good empiricists now, and we have this natural inclination to worship the deity. Yeah, so Demia is a dogmatic mystic, and at first it might seem that it's the mysticism <laughs> that Philo has a has a problem with, right? Because with Cleanthes, he's saying like, yeah, let's dig into the empirical world and figure out what we can figure out about what God's like. Um, but in the end, it's not the mysticism that Philo has a problem with. He's a sort of mystic too. It's the dogmatism that Philo has a problem with. We should be skeptical mystics, not dogmatic mystics. Uh, uh, one very speculative point that might count in favor of thinking that Hume is more complex than a straight-up atheist and and that he has something like a Philo-style minimalist picture yeah. is that it seems to me that Cleanthes at one point expresses the same view, um, like a more min minimalist view than he ends up expressing at the end in part 12. But so I'm looking at the end of part 5. This is after Philo says this world maybe is a faulty, imperfect, kind of rude first attempt. Cleanthes says, it gives me pleasure when I see that by the utmost indulgence of your imagination, you never get rid of the hypothesis of design in the universe, but are obligated at every turn to have recourse to it. To this concession I adhere steadily, and this I regard as a sufficient foundation for religion. So later it seems like Cleanthes' foundation for religion involves a little bit of a thicker notion, um, but here it just sounds like design. You're, you're turning to design one way or another, and that's sufficient foundation for religion. And so maybe if you have this kind of sneakily coming out of different characters' mouth, there's something to that, but maybe not. Yeah, I see. The suggestion is we can find the true Hume by sort of triangulating what the three characters are saying. And um, if something right. comes out of each of their mouths at different times and they all seem reasonable, maybe that's maybe that's Hume's actual view. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I agree. Sort of more complicated than just identifying Hume with one of the characters. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Ben and Nabil. Really appreciate you guys coming on. Thanks for having Thanks me. For having it was me. fun. Thanks again to Dr. Ben Baker and Dr. Nabil Hamid for joining me to talk about Hume on religion. That's it for this week's episode. Next week, we'll jump ahead a few centuries to the present day and take a look at the current state of the philosophical debate about whether science and religion conflict. I'll talk to you then on episode 10 of Dialogues, Meditations, and Analysis. <laughs>